We are in a, a series um, that centers on an end-time picture of explosive joy. Revelations 19, there's this picture and that we've, we've mentioned a couple weeks in a row here. As a way to start, it's, it's verse 6 to 9. It says this, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. This is a picture of a great, raucous crowd cheering because God has defeated all that's wrong with the world, all that's evil, all that's unjust. God has won it over. And I start there because that's what this series is ultimately about. What we believe is that there's this party um, there's this end-time party that many millions of people just in our area don't know that they've been invited to. And this week, I walked into a, a scene of explosive joy. What do I mean? Tuesday night, after late night, um, out in Jersey with our Jersey table, lots of fun. Came home, turned on the TV, and the good guys were up against the bad guys, 7-0. <laughs> Um, some context, bottom of the ninth, if you don't follow baseball, there's nine innings, so this is near the end. I walked in, it was an 0-1 count with two outs. Um, two more strikes, and the game is over. First pitch that I saw, fouled back, 0-2. The next one, hitter makes contact, grounder to shortstop, Dansby Swanson, famed boyfriend of um, U.S. women's national team star, Forward, Mallory Pugh. He pumps to second and then throws it to first, and just like that, game over. Explosive joy. Grown men acting like they're five years old. Braves fans who hadn't experienced this type of joy in 26 years exploding. I could imagine all my college friends huddled around the TV. And they were celebrating so violently because it's been such a long time, and in between those 26 years were years of massive futility. They showed Mr. Brave himself, Freddie Freeman, and they talked about all those years where they didn't know which way was up in Atlanta baseball. And just in a single moment, Joy's power is to reinterpret the failures, hardships, futility of the past, and to transform these things into a fuller story of redemption. And there is a coming scene marked by explosive joy, and many do not know that they've been invited. And we are forming this fellowship so that they would know. And we are in the series called Tables of Jesus because what we believe is that there's these 10 meal scenes, these, meals, um, these scenes of hospitality and fellowship, of discussion in the book of Luke where Jesus is explaining how his mission and purpose connects with that end time scene. So we're just tracing it through. And last week, Pastor Raylo taught on Luke 15. And there's two verses in Luke 15 that connects with Luke 19, which we're talking about today. I think it frames it up well. There's verse 7 in Luke 15. It says this, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Follows that in verse 10 and says this, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. There's this scene of rejoicing in heaven explosive rejoicing, explosive joy. 
But the question is, what does rejoicing have to do with this other idea in these verses? And that's this idea of repentance. What does rejoicing have to do with repentance? Because if, in your mind, if you think about scenes of joy, you think of Braves winning the World Series and grown men piling their bodies on top of each other to celebrate because that's what you do. When you think about repenting, what image comes to mind there? Um, There's a pastor in my childhood who does this whole bit, um, video you could look up called Bullhorn, where he talks about how the picture that comes to mind of the street preacher who stands in the corner with a bullhorn yells words like repent and condemnation can often feel like it's loaded with shame and guilt, dreary, joyless. And so what does rejoicing have to do with repentance? Was it that, that time as a kid you were so afraid that someone scared you about the idea of hell that you said a prayer? Is that repentance? What is repentance? The issue is, like we've been doing this whole series, and I've been talking about joy every week, and it's sort of been a bait and switch. Because Luke, when talking about the purpose for which God comes, for which Jesus comes, he bookends it, he bookends the thing on this idea of repentance. In Luke 5, he says this, Jesus answered them, those who well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repent, to repentance. He says that at the start of the book, and at the end of the book, he says, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and rise on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, the name of, in, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And this is what you're witnesses to. We are witnesses to this idea of repentance, this often seemingly joyless, shameful idea of repentance. So what does this mean? What we've said throughout the book is that when Jesus wants to explain his mission and purpose to his disciples, he doesn't give them a theology. He gives them a meal. Thank you. Um, And in the same way, Luke, when he's trying to explain the purpose of this idea and this concept of repentance, um, Luke doesn't give a treatise. He gives a story. And this is what the story of Zacchaeus illustrates. If you want to understand what Jesus intends for this concept of repentance, he gives us this story of a short guy named Zacchaeus. And I feel this deeply. And this is the headline. If if you miss everything else, hear this. Repentance. This is the line. Also in the last page of your order of worship, there's this summed up. Anyway, so um, repentance begins with taking your quest up, um, only to get called down and then turned out, okay? So repentance begins with taking your quest up, here's the parentheses, up a new tree, only get called down by another quester and then turned out in full joy. Say it one more time, repentance, I've worked like 15 hours on this one phrase, so you're gonna hear it. (laughs) Uh, Repentance (laughs) begins with taking your quest up, only to get called down, and then ultimately turned out, okay? So we'll start with the first. Repentance begins by taking your quest up, a new tree. Zacchaeus, it says in these uh, these first three verses, wants to see Jesus. He's on a quest, and a few things you have to understand about Zacchaeus is one, he's an unlikely seeker. He's a tax collector. We said this a couple weeks ago, but um, the Roman Empire was this global power, and their dominance stretched from 
most of the known world, and they enforced their power with a sort of bully power. They threw their weight around. And what they would do is they would extract value from all their conquered kingdoms and countries by just developing a system of taxes that would take from the poor nations and fill up the coffers of Rome and all the places where their government, their, their government and their authority stretched. But the problem was there was no digital platform that they could plug everything into. It was a wildly inefficient system. And so the way that they did it was they, local, they hired locals who knew the roads in and out and could extract as much value as possible from, from these distant lands. And Zacchaeus was that dude. Um, these tax collectors had the full force and the weight of the, the soldiers at their disposal, and they were not looked at favorably by the locals. And not only this, but Zacchaeus was a chief. This means he had regional clout. And so there were different groups at the time of Jesus who were seen as you know, pious or saintly, and tax collectors were not those people. He's an unlikely seeker. But not only that, but he's also an obstructed seeker. The text says that he's of small stature. He's short. There's this large crowd forming around this person of Jesus, and there's this crowd, and he's small, and he cannot see. And I know about that life. Whenever I see a general admission, it worries me at a concert. Right? Stadium seating is what I'm looking for. Bible commentators mention that if, it could just be that he's small stature could, could not mean literally, you know, short. It could mean that, that he's young or he doesn't have a good reputation. But either way, it's very apparent here that there's these, um, that there's these crowds and they're obstructing his capacity to see. Side note, so... In the book of Luke, there's these constant triangles. You have to understand the triangles. There's Jesus, there's the main character, and there's some obstructing force, right? So it's often tax collectors. Here, it's the crowds. And they're, they're, they're causing obstruction to the way of Jesus. Side note here, you don't want to be that third group between whoever that person is and wherever Jesus is. And Zacchaeus is an obstructed seeker. And we can say that whether it's small stature or bad reputation, just go with the fact that he's short and he cannot see. But Zacchaeus is only, not only an unlikely seeker, he's not only an obstructed seeker. What you have to understand also by looking at the text is he's a humble seeker. So for everything wrong that he's going up against him, he's a humble seeker versus prideful. What do I mean by this? Um, for all the negatives, here's what, what Zaki understands. That he, this is what he has going for him. He at least understands that there's something he cannot see. He does not have the full picture. He cannot comprehend the scene completely. And because he cannot see and he understands that there's something he needs to see but he cannot see, he takes his quest up a tree because the tree provided that way to see. This would have been embarrassing to look at. Look, this grown man with regional clout, you know, with wearing a robe, climbing up a tree, exposing himself. But he knew there was something he was missing. So forget his pride, he had to see. What does this have to do with repentance? Repentance in the Greek is this word, metanoia, 
comes from two different, it's, it's actually a compound word, meta, um, and the root word of noeo, okay? And meta, metamorphosis, means to change. Noeo means to think or to understand, and so it's to change your mind. Repentance, fundamentally, is the capacity to change your mind, to rethink something. And here's the deal, if at, if at base, repentance begins with the capacity to change your mind, it's hard to change your mind about some, anything of consequence or significance if you're convinced that you have perfect, perfect perspective. You feel me? We're so prideful, we hold fast to our assumptions and conclusions, and we can't admit, maybe I'm missing something. And I need to swallow my pride and figure, there out, figure this out. Is there something I can't see? Zacchaeus knew that there was something he couldn't see, so he took his quest up a new tree. Humbly, taking a position of understanding there was something that he was missing. Two examples to bring this down. Um, Regarding just faith in, in, in Jesus and Christianity, there's this book called A Severe Mercy written by Sheldon Vonneken. He spends a chapter detailing his story of conversion to faith while he was studying at Oxford. And he had all these doubts and these questions and his apprehensions. And he talks about his starting point, right? His, his fundamental sort of starting point of, 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 and his posture towards Christianity. He said this about Christians. He and his wife believed this. Our fundamental assumption, which we had been pleased to regard as intelligent insight, had been that all Christians were necessarily stuffy, hidebound, or stupid people to keep one's distance from. About Christianity, he said, it just couldn't be true. How could Earth's religion, well, one of Earth's religions, be true for the whole galaxy, millions of planets, maybe? That what rules Christianity outright, that, that's what rules Christianity outright in the beginning. It's just too little. But Sheldon and his wife, Davy found their way into a quest. They didn't know what the conclusion would be, but they knew that there was something they could not see. He writes, to believe with certainty, one has to begin by doubting. He talks about this moment where he realized, maybe there's something I'm missing. And he writes, anyhow, into my mind came, as it had done every now and then through the years, the memory of a shadow of a cross made by the destroyer's mast in Yardam, and my subsequent resolve someday to have another look at the case of Christianity. Perhaps now was the time to do it. The idea seemed less revolting than in other times it occurred, Of course, Christianity couldn't possibly be true, a thought suggested. And there against the darkening sky was the tremendous soaring uprush of the spire of St. Mary the Virgin. My resolve came to this point. This was the time to do it. For all the firm sort of conviction that Christianity could not be true, ought not to be true, it all begins with a simple question. Is there something I'm possibly missing? Is there something I need to consider? And repentance begins with taking your quest up a new tree to admit you don't have perfect vision and perspective. I know that you're convinced possibly about what you believe, but is it possible there is something you cannot see? And this isn't only true for those who may not be followers of Jesus. Martin Luther has a super famous quote. He said this, when our Lord Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. A constant rethinking and reordering, reconsidering. Let me explain what this, what this has looked like for me. If, um, a couple years ago, I didn't tell Jules, I didn't tell the story, we were in a difficult moment in our marriage. 
hey, we had two young kids. We live far from home. A stressful job. Because some people in the room, no, I'm just kidding. Um, had a stressful job, and we knew that it was difficult. And my response was, hey, you know this is hard. Just push through. I was um, defensive and forceful all at once. She was home with our two babies. I mean, they were super young. And my mentality was, hey, just suck it up and push. Our friends knew that our marriage is hard. And because, you know, like, as soon as people know, that's when it's, like, real. Um, and that, that felt like the hardest part. You know, once people know, then it's officially bad. And when things get hard and you can't fix it, you, get def- I, you know, I get defensive. And I say, hey, this is what you're doing wrong. I might be a little wrong, but you're definitely more wrong. And one night, um, I was at a a prayer gathering, so overwhelmed by what was happening. I just began to pray, Lord, help us. I don't know what you, you can do exactly, but would you help us here? And the most unusual thought came to my mind as I prayed, so unusual that could only be the Lord. He said, you don't understand the ways that I've gifted her. There's so much about her you're missing, and you're so defensive because you think you see it all so clearly, but is it possible you're missing something entirely? This is what I know about repentance. As you deal with what you may not be seeing, repentance has great power to realign you with reality. As you reflect and reconsider, the Spirit and His goodness and gentleness moves you back into reality. So repentance begins with taking your quest up a new tree. Is it possible that there's something that you cannot see from where you're standing and you need to take your quest up someplace different? But not only does repentance begin with taking your quest up a new tree, you take your quest up a new tree, but just like Zacchaeus, only to get called down. only to get called down by another quester who stuns you with the sound of your own name. Zacchaeus is met by his own name. Jesus stuns Zacchaeus with the sound of someone calling out to him. There's this great crowd of people and a short guy by height or reputation we don't know can't get access to Jesus at the center of this crowd, but Jesus cuts through and calls him by name. Vonnegut again says that what they, as they started to explore, what they realized was Christianity had, had, come to the, had come to seem to us probable, but it all hinged on Jesus. Was he, in fact, the Lord, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, the Christ? Was he indeed the incarnate God, very God of very God? This was the heart of the matter. And if there's one thing I want to get across in this entire series is that when you get to heaven, there won't be a systematic set of beliefs waiting for you. It'll be a person person will greet you, and this person knows your name. And I just think that's really great. He knows your name. Zacchaeus, in a crowd full of people, is welcomed by the sound of his name. And that's just a side point. And back to the serious theology. And Jesus is on a quest. (laughs) Jesus is on a quest Zacchaeus thought that he was the one that was on this quest to be able to see 
who Jesus was, but what he realizes is that Jesus is on his own, as a quest of his own. What you have to understand is that in the book of Luke, there's actually movement all throughout the book of Luke. Um, at the end of chapter 19, you'll see that it ends with Jesus um, at the start of Jerusalem, the triumphant, triumphant entry. And so this whole time in this section that we've been reading through these different stories, Jesus is making his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem for the start of the Passion Week. And this is the quest that Jesus is on, right? He's not only a quest going from Galilee down to Jerusalem, but what we understand when you read the full scope of Scripture is that the argument that the, these first Christians made is that Jesus is on this cosmic quest, that Jesus, living eternally with the Father, gives up his, divinity, his, his, his full scope of, of supernaturalness to enter into the story of humanity and become human like us because he is on a cosmic, eternal quest. And this quest ends on a tree. So if, if Zacchaeus jumps on top of this tree because he's on a quest or something he cannot see, what we believe is that Jesus gives us the full scope of who God is when he also mounts a tree. And what we see, the fullness of, of what we read about in the Old Testament comes and it becomes filtered through the person of Jesus and the work he does on the cross, that there's this other tree that gives full perspective to, to the whole of humanity about what God is actually like. And the emphasis here is, look, there's this great cosmic quest that Jesus is on, but in this whole movement of what he's doing, of what Jesus is doing, through all of it, even as he's amid crowds and speaking to Roman governors, he does it all knowing your name. That the, pers- the, the, the personalness of this movement is not lost on him. You're not just a faceless person in the crowd. He goes to the cross knowing, knowing you personally, completely, and fully. He knows your name. You have to understand that this morning. He knows your name. This is serious theology. As he mounts, his, mounts that tree and fulfills this, this movement for which he came, he does it knowing your name. And repentance begins with taking of your quest up a new tree, only get called down. But what you see with Zacchaeus is that he's also turned out. Verse 6 says, so, so when Jesus calls him down, Zacchaeus says, so he hurried and came down and re- received him joyfully. Emphasis on the fully. What you have to understand about Jesus, I heard this explained recently, is that when Jesus comes, he brings full joy. John 15, verse 9 to 11, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your, your joy may be full. I heard a pastor say recently that he loves that Jesus says full because in reality, a lot of things in life offer partial joy. But Jesus says full joy. Psalm 16 says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's this phrase I heard, some people are so poor that all they have is money. 
And Zacchaeus seems to be one of those guys. He's got stacks, and they bring partial joy. We'd even say is diminishing joy with every stack added to the, to the bundle. But what you realize is that even as his whole life, at the expense of his social relationships and reputation, was all about stacking paper, as soon as the, G, the, the full joy that Jesus brings comes to him, what does he do? All the things that bring partial joy gets shoved out, and he's ready to hand it all away. And this is what this full joy does. Full joy shoves out partial joy. He says, I don't need it anymore. It doesn't do it for me anymore. Only you bring full joy. So hear the power of repentance. One, it realigns you with reality, and two, it fills you with a full joy that reconfigures your life and opens you up to new possibilities. As you begin to rethink and reconsider, you're aligned with reality, and then you're filled with this full, full, full joy. There's this end picture of joy when we celebrate the victory of what God has done in all of creation, but what Jesus seems to be saying, that that full joy is available to us now. That as we see in his presence and as we hear him call our name, that there is a fullness of joy that's unparalleled. And this is why we worship. You have been made for this full joy. And you are on a quest, whether you know it or not. Would you consider that there's something you might not be seeing? And maybe, just maybe, all of it terminates back to hearing him call your name. Let's pray. Father, we ask and we pray that you would give us a deep conviction about who Jesus is. That even now in the areas where we feel stuck and we feel like our quest has gone sideways, as we call to you, would you give us new perspective about what we may not be seeing? And that we might know you and experience the joy that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray.